at about five o'clock this morning, Chad, our minister of worship arts, received a phone call that his grandmother was at the point of life or death, and so he has made his way to be with her and family as they go through this day and these next days together. So uh, be in prayer for the Smith family, and uh, with him being out, our youth choir decided they would, uh, would wait until Chad returns to share with us, and they have been working hard, and we certainly look forward to, uh, to hearing from them And one of the Sundays coming up. Um, also, I'm reminded of just the uh, significance of this weekend in our community. Um, as you're aware, the last, over the last week, we have uh, recognized the anniversary of the Murrah Building bombing. In fact, this morning, as has become a tradition in our community, uh, the running of the, the marathon race, we have several members of our church that always participate and engage in that as a way um, of remembering uh, certainly this morning as we talk about forgiveness, um, part of forgiveness is not for, forgetting. Certainly part of forgiveness is remembering, but not in a way that would be vengeful, not in a way that would be uh, resentful, but in a way that again is redeeming. And so um, let us be mindful of the need in our community to continue to seek uh, healing and continue to seek forgiveness and so as we remember and as we think about the Smith family, as we recognize the struggles and needs and, and griefs in our own lives, um, as we begin to talk about forgiveness, let's take a few moments of silence and ask the Spirit of God to come and to minister to us this morning. Let's pray quietly. Father, through the tears, through the hurt, you hear our prayers. We give thanks. We give thanks for continued healing. We give thanks for the grace of forgiveness. And Father, may we be reminded that that is a grace that we are called to share and to give to others. For it's in the name of Christ that we offer this prayer. Amen. Martin Niemöller was a, a pastor and theologian, a German pastor and theologian that some of you may be familiar with. Uh, he was uh, engaged and involved in Germany in the 30s, uh, and especially as Hitler and the Nazi party came to power, he was one of those early German pastors and theologians that understood the dangers that were coming in his own nation through the, the power of Hitler, through the power and rising of the Nazi party. And so he became one of those first vocal pastors that rejected uh, the, the way that the state church had been taken over by Hitler and by the Nazi officials, the, the changes that were being made uh, within the church and within the nation. And so he stood up to rebel against that and to speak out against that only to find himself arrested soon for being against the state and, and even for being against the church as it had transformed. 
During his imprisonment, he found himself at the Dachau uh, concentration camp. And right outside of his window were the gallows that many of the Jews and many of the, the dissidents of that time were executed. And as he tells the story, he remembers and reflected that he used to, to pray for those that were on their way to the gallows, that were on their way to be executed. He would pray to God for their souls. He would pray for their captors. As he prayed, as he witnessed this experience over and over again, he began to ask himself the question, how will I respond when that noose is placed around my neck? He said, will I lash out at my executioner and, and call them criminals and, and lash out at them in, in anger and resentment? Will I call the wrath of God upon them and say, God knows what you're doing. God knows of this injustice and God himself will come against you. And he began to be troubled by that thought and by that, that picture of himself dying at the hands of the Nazis. And so a second question began to stir in his mind and in his heart. The question that said this, what would happen if Jesus died this way? What would happen if Jesus was the one who I saw out my window with the noose around his neck uh, being put to death by these executioner and this injustice? How would Jesus respond would he have cursed his enemies and would he have cursed his murderers? Reflecting on the powerful story of Jesus' own crucifixion, Niebuhr became convicted that Jesus would not have responded in that way. In fact, if he had responded in a way to, to curse his murderers and, and to, to curse those who were executing and those were, that were calling out against him and condemning him, if Jesus had responded in that way, Niemuller came to the conclusion that there would be no gospel story, that there would be no hope for us today, that there would be no salvation and he remembered that instead Jesus cried out from the cross, Father, forgive them. Forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And the Spirit of God began to, to change Nemuller's heart and attitude and, and his desire and his prayer was that if he ever faced the gallows, if that rope ever came across his neck, that he would respond in the same way, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Niemuller was saved from execution during that time and ultimately was set free and became a very influential theologian and pastor internationally after the war. But his story and his reflection causes us to ask this same question. Could it be that forgiveness, 
both the receiving of forgiveness and the giving of forgiveness, that forgiveness is still the key to our ability to overcome the challenges and the struggles and the evils of this world. Certainly, our initial response and reaction is, there is a God in heaven and you are going to get it one day. And that we would curse those who would come against us. How would our world change today if we embraced this same view of forgiveness? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. As we continue to encounter Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew over these weeks, we encounter a story of forgiveness today in Matthew chapter 18. Turn with me if you would. It's a powerful, powerful story, a powerful encounter between Peter and Jesus on forgiveness and a parable, a story that Jesus shares that if we're honest with ourselves, that, that may even be a little bit troubling to us. Matthew kind of introduces us or, or prepares us for verse 21 as he begins in verse 15. And they begin to talk about what happens if your brother sins. And they talk about how you can begin to, to manage that and how you can go to that person and seek redemption and reconciliation and forgiveness with one who has sinned against you. And then Peter asks the question that, that must have been burning within that certainly is the question that we all ask when it comes to forgiving others. Peter says in verse 21, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and, and I forgive him? Sounds like a good question to me. How often do I have to forgive this person that continues to, to come against me, that continues to abuse me, that continues to, to do harm and evil against me? Lord, how often do I need to forgive them? Surely, Lord, there are limits to my forgiveness. Peter volunteers. Peter understands. Uh, he's beginning to understand who Jesus is. And so he knows that the traditional answer is not the answer that Jesus would give. So, so Peter volunteers. Okay, Jesus, seven times? Jesus and the disciples knowing that out of the Old Testament, particularly out of the gospel, uh, excuse me, out of, the, uh, out of Amos, minor prophet, that there was an understanding that, G, that, that God would forgive three times. But on the fourth time, that God would exercise His judgment and His wrath upon the sinful people or person. This was the rabbinic teaching of that day. When you went to synagogue, when, when you heard the Jewish leaders teach on forgiveness, it was, you are to forgive that person three times. And so for Peter to acknowledge and to step forth and say, Jesus, so if we forgive them seven times, he is understanding and recognizing and beginning to understand what this idea of grace would be, that we would forgive tw twice as much as what would be expected. And Jesus continues. He answers this question in verse 22. I do not say to you seven times, 
but 77 times. Now, I grew up, and in, in, in my translation that I used was 70 times 7. Probably most of us remember that growing up, and we think, wow, 490 times. We can all do the math. And we understood that that was a, a, an example of just however many, an infinite amount of times. The more accurate translation of that passage is 77 times. And, and what we understand is that accurate translation is that it's a reference back to Genesis chapter 4, verse 24, with Lamech, who is talking about his own vengeance and how he is taking vengeance upon those who've harmed him. And he says to the effect that I will take my vengeance and my revenge 77 times. And now Jesus flips that. He reverses that and he says, no, instead of talking about revenge of a person who's sinned against you 77 times, now we're going to change the conversation. We're going to begin to talk about what does it mean to forgive that person 77 times. Not to take revenge 77 times. So Jesus is, is in one sense, he's affirming Peter. But he's saying, oh, Peter, that you would understand that it's not just seven times. It's 77 times. It is that unlimited amount of forgiveness. F.D. Bruner writes that Jesus can require infinite forgiveness because he has infinitely forgiven us. And so after Jesus makes this really radical statement, this statement of, of forgiving someone 77 times, he begins with a, a kingdom of heaven parable story. Let, let's go ahead and read that. It, it may be familiar to some of us, but for, for some, this may be the first time that we've, we've heard and considered this parable. Verse 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, the Lord commanded to be, him to be sold along with his wife and children. And all that he had in repayment could be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of the slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and he began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe me. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him saying, well have patience with me and, and I'll repay you. But he was unwilling and he went and he threw him in prison until he could pay back what he owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved, they were deeply saddened and disturbed, and they came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. And then the Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? 
And his Lord removed, excuse me, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was his, all that was owed him. And then the conclusion. My heavenly Father will do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother or his sister from your heart. Again, a powerful, powerful story of forgiveness. A man, an owner, a, a Lord who is calling in his debts, that which is owed to him, and the story of one servant who comes in, and the reality is, is that he has a debt that he can never repay. 10,000 talents. Now, some of your translation, mine at the bottom has a footnote saying that that's 15 years plus of salary. Another author or commentator that I read said it's, it's even greater than that. It's 60,000 days of pay. It is an amount that cannot be paid back by this person. And this servant recognizes this and he realizes this and, and that the threat of his wife and his children, even himself being sold and all of his possessions being sold to make as much payment back as they could. This slave, this servant just falls prostrate before the Lord and the Master and he cries and he begs and he, oh, please have, have compassion upon me. Please forgive. Oh, if you'll just give me the time, I'll work and I'll, I'll do my best to pay you back. And the story tells us that this Lord, this Master was so moved with compassion, his heart was stirred so much that he not only pardoned this servant but he, he wiped his debt completely free he forgave him his debt I'm reminded a few chapters earlier in the Sermon on the Mount particularly the, the Beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5 if you, you'll turn back to that passage you'll see that the first Beatitude says this Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. In this parable, Matthew is giving us this incredible picture of what it means to be poor in spirit. Of what it means to come before the Lord, to come before God in, in, in a way that recognizes our debt to God that recognizes that we owe God beyond anything that we could ever pay Him, that we have, have taken out a debt, we have sinned against, and that there's nothing that we can do to pay God that debt that we owe Him, that we are at His mercy. To be poor in spirit means that we understand this insurmountable debt. It means that as we stand before a holy and righteous God, that we are not holy and righteous. To be poor in spirit before the Lord means that we humble ourselves. We come before Him in humility, asking and pleading and recognizing our own need for mercy. Grace, forgiveness.
and that that is something that we do not deserve. And again, as Jesus reminds us in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who, who see themselves in light of that holy and pure God. Blessed are those that fall in brokenness before God and cry out to Him, theirs, theirs is the kingdom of God. What incredible news. And so in the first part of this parable, we see this servant come in broken in a a poverty of spirit and his Lord responds and his Lord forgives and in, in a sense his Lord offers the kingdom of forgiveness to him. And so the story takes almost an unimaginable turn here. It's inconceivable that as this servant leaves in the glow of his forgiveness, having been unchained and unbound, having received the grace and forgiveness not only for himself but for his wife and his children, that they've all been set free in the glow of that newfound freedom and liberty. This servant leaves his master and goes and seeks out a fellow servant. Who owes him and demands his payment, demands that he be paid back right there. And again, this servant, he, he cries out, he pleads, oh, I, I, I can't, I don't have that to repay you. Could you offer some extra time and I'll pay you back? Can you, can you forgive me? Can you just have some grace? Now, the Scripture tries to give us an idea of the, the difference in the debt. But it's in some ancient monetary values and figures that we don't fully understand. 10,000 talents sounds like a lot. 100 denarii sounds like a lot. But when you compare them together, you realize the huge discrepancy and gulf between the two. The, the difference in the debt was one five hundred thousandth of a difference. Let's put that in dollars and cents. The first servant owed his master $10 million. The servant's friend owed his friend $20. The first servant was forgiven the $10 million debt that he owed. This same servant refused to forgive the $20 debt that his fellow servant owed him. Wow. Wow. Now we can see why the fellow servants were, were troubled, were grieved, were saddened. Again, I'm reminded of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse, I believe, 7, where Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful. For they shall receive mercy. And when the master heard that this first slave had refused to give mercy to his fellow servant, he called him back in to make account once again. He called him wicked and he moved with anger and he handed him over to the torturers until he could repay what he owed. And we've already talked about that this 
servant would never, ever, ever be able to repay his owner. So the master was sending him to prison and to be at the hands of the torturers for the rest of his life. The master must have been broken, have broken hearted as the torturers, as, as they came to get him and began to lead him to prison. I can just hear the master saying out to this servant, should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? Could you not have just repaid him? A li- it was just so little. It was just 20 bucks. You were forgiven $10 million. You were forgiven a debt that you could never, ever repay. Couldn't you just have returned a little grace, a little mercy? Blessed are those who give mercy, for they shall receive mercy. So how are we to understand this? And this is where this parable, when we look at it, we go, oh, okay. How are we to understand that the kingdom of God has been taken away from this unmerciful and unforgiving servant? The kingdom of God has been bestowed upon him in the first part of this parable. And then a few verses later, the kingdom has been taken away. How are we to understand that? How are we to work that out? As we read the full context of of the New Testament, as we understand the gospel message, as we understand poverty of spirit and mercy and forgiveness, the scripture is clear if we want to read it and understand it. That there is a future day of accountability. There is a future judgment for all of us. Yes, salvation is a grace gift. We are justified. We are made righteous by grace through faith. Through the work of Jesus Christ. We are forgiven as this servant experienced in the first part of this story. Yet, Paul, especially in this story, tells us that in the future, that we will be judged by our works. James says, I will show you my faith by my works. In the future, we will all be judged by our works. Now, I believe that those who are truly justified, those who have a true sense of their poverty of spirit, those who receive God's grace and mercy and forgiveness and practice that in their lives, that those who are truly justified will stand justified by their works. But hear me when I say that resentment and grudges and bitterness are not the work or the fruit of the Spirit of God and the work and the fruit of forgiveness in our own lives. Our salvation, our grace, 
Our justification before God is without condition. It is unconditional. It is a free gift. But that free gift is not without consequences. It is not without accountability. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, another of those German pastors that that stood for truth and righteousness during the, the Hitler and Nazi days in Germany, wrote this, Grace is free, but it is not cheap. And the reality is, is that we sell cheap grace in many of our churches in America today. Grace cost the Father his Son. Grace cost the Son crucifixion. Grace is free, but it has impact and consequences on our life. Paul says that I no longer live I have died to myself, and now Christ lives in me. Jesus invites us to come and to take up our cross and to carry it. His grace is free, but His grace is an invitation to walk and to mature and to grow as disciples and followers of Christ. Why didn't this servant see that and understand that? Why did he not take that incredible pardon and forgiveness that he had received? And why did he not anticipate and embrace opportunities for himself to practice pardon and mercy in the lives of others? William Barclay writes this, or wrote this. He says, our forgiveness of our fellow man and God's forgiveness of us cannot be separated They are interlinked and interdependent. Again, we turn to the Sermon on the Mount. Remember the Lord's Prayer. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Forgiveness from God, forgiveness of others, somehow linked and woven together. Uh, Maybe a better translation of of that passage in Matthew 6, verse 12 is, And God, forgive us our debts to the extent that we have forgiven our debtors. Okay, well, I'm not going to forgive you. Well, then God's saying, well, then I'm not going to forgive you either. To the extent that we forgive, we're asking God to forgive us. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have sinned against us. One theologian wrote, A person with an unforgiving spirit towards others is incapable of receiving God's forgiveness for himself. A person with an unforgiving spirit seems to me to be a person who is not poor in spirit. Our unforgiving spirit prevents and hinders us from receiving and living out God's forgiveness that he desires to bestow upon us. Again, Barclay writes, To be forgiven, we must forgive. And that is a condition of forgiveness which only the power of Christ can enable us to fulfill. Again, acknowledging this this link and this this relationship between the forgiveness we receive from God and the forgiveness that we offer to others. We want to ask the question, which comes first, right? 
I don't know that that's the question that they're asking here. Francis of Assisi, in, in his, his prayer that we all are familiar with, I think he picks up on this idea. Let me share the, the part of that prayer that I'm thinking of. St. Francis writes, prays, It is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning or forgiving that we are pardoned. It is in dying that we are born again to eternal life. You see the, the tensions and the paradoxes in, in the Christian faith. The first shall be last. We, we have to give to receive. We have to die in order to live. We have to pardon in order to, in order to be pardoned. And again, that's, that's a work of the Spirit of God. It's a work of Christ that takes place within our lives, that takes place within those who are poor in spirit as they learn to practice mercy and grace and forgiveness. Jesus, at the end of that sermon on the, uh, the Lord's Prayer, Matthew wants to explore that idea of forgiveness a little bit more. And in verse 15, he says, If you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. It's a powerful statement. powerful statement that, that we must struggle with because we have those places in our heart, in our lives, where, where God, I can't forgive that person. That person doesn't, for, doesn't deserve my forgiveness. And I can hear the Spirit of God speak to your spirit and say, you're right. They do not deserve your forgiveness. But remember that you had an insurmountable debt that I forgave you. And now I'm calling and asking you to forgive and to be in that journey of forgiveness towards others. Again, referring to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verse 48. This is the, the passage where Jesus is taking that extended passage where Jesus is taking those Old Testament commands and he's interpreting them in the light of grace. And at the end of that passage, in those verses in the 40s, he says that we're to love our enemies. Can you imagine? To love our, our enemies? To, to love those that would, would hurt us, that would harm us? To love those that would sin against us? And then in verse 48, he says, You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, now we all understand that none of us are perfect. We are made righteous. We are declared righteous before God. We are declared perfect. But then our life here in this place is about working that out and living into that perfection, a task that we'll never fully accomplish here. But listen to Jesus saying, love your enemies, forgive your enemies, and, and be perfect in this. Grow and mature in this. Because forgiveness is a work in progress. You may have to forgive someone of the same sin every day of your life, right? That they did 20 years ago. We're so close to the tragedy of the Murrah building. Many of you here, I'm sure, were engaged and involved in that. You had friends and maybe even family affected by that. I can't imagine the, the hurt and the anger and the pain that that would exist even 21 years later to say, God, 
forgive him. Because this, I still fight with this bitterness and this anger and this rage within me against this person. But God, you've forgiven me, so teach me and allow me to, to grow in my forgiveness each and every day. Our faith calls us to declare, because of what God has done for me, I forgive you. And now I need to figure that out. I need to work that out. I need to live that out. I need to be perfected and completed in that as I live each and every day. We must always remember that forgiveness is never about settling the score. That forgiveness is never about retribution or retaliation. But likewise, and hear me carefully here, forgiveness is neither permission to be abused, permission to discount the pain and the hurt that you've suffered, and permission to continue in abusive situations and relationships. Forgiveness is acknowledging our own forsakenness and moving beyond that hurt and that pain to find healing, redemption, and yes, even when appropriate, reconciliation. Myron Augsburger writes this. He says, forgiveness is difficult Forgiveness is hard work. It, it is costly. For forgiveness means that the offended one resolves their hurt by love. Forgiveness means that we release the offender without making them suffer. Don't he, please don't hear me say that forgiveness is, oh, I, I forgive you. No. Forgiveness acknowledges the hurt and the pain. And the forgiveness says, you're forgiven and, and I'm not going to retaliate. I'm not going to hold out until you suffer and you hurt like I do. You are forgiven. And God calls us to this grace because we have received and now we must grow and mature in that Paul reminds us in Colossians 3, verse 13, he says, we are to forgive each other just as the Lord forgave you. George W. Truett tells a story of a preacher in London who was giving his invitation and who made the statement in his, his sermon, his invitation, that God wants to save the worst man in London. Well, after the service, a lady came up to him, and she said, Pastor, I know the worst man in London, <laughs> and he's dying. And so she took him to this man, and the preacher went in and sat down there by his bedside, and they began to talk and have conversation, and sure enough, this man on his deathbed looked up at the pastor, and he said, Pastor, I am the worst man in London. And let me tell you that Christ has no love, and he has no interest in me. What he's saying is, Pastor, you don't understand who I am and what I've done. And you need to understand that there's no way that Jesus could forgive me, that Jesus could offer grace and pardon to me because I am that horrible and terrible of a man. And yet this pastor 
came alongside and he said, but sir, you don't understand. My Lord, Jesus, will forgive you. He will save you. If you're willing, if you'll just receive it. And this man said, oh, pastor, if it could only be so. If it could only be so, I would like to be forgiven. And there on his deathbed, this man surrendered in prayer. And there in that conversation, this man's bitterness and hurt and anger turned to joy and peace. And then he looked up at the pastor and he said, well, except for one thing. I'd really like for my dad to forgive me. So the pastor said, well, where is he at? I'll go get him. The pastor goes to the dad's house. He knocks on the door. And he says, sir, I've been talking with your pastor. And the dad says, just wait a minute. I've been talking with your son. The pastor said, just wait a minute. The father said, I used to have a son. But he shamed us all. He embarrassed and humiliated all of us. So I showed him the door. And I showed him the gate. And I told him to never come back again. He was no longer my son and a part of our family. And the pastor looked at this dad and he said, you need to know that your son is dying. And that God has forgiven him. And that he desires for you to come and to forgive him as well. So this father grabbed his things and his own brokenness, he began to, to go with his pastor and they came alongside this son. And the son spoke out to his dad. He said, Father, God has forgiven me. I know what a poor sinner and wretched person that I am, but God has forgiven me. The dad looked at him and he said, Son, if I would have only known that you wanted me to forgive you, I could have never held out against you. And in that moment, in that man's deathbed, this father offered forgiveness. And there was redemption and reconciliation in those moments before this man died. This morning, we have a heavenly Father that invites all of us to receive and to experience His forgiveness. Have you received that? Have you seen yourself in this story to recognize you're the one that has the debt that can't be repaid? And a Father, a Master, a Lord... Who wants to forgive? And then there are those of us this morning. The truth is, is that somebody needs your forgiveness. The truth is, is that there is bitterness and there is resentment and there is jealousy that is stirring and is deep down within you. And, and you've said on more than one occasion, that person I will never forgive. And as we've said, they may not deserve it. Yet God calls us to begin that journey of forgiving. Will you begin that journey today? Will you begin to offer forgiveness to that one who has sinned against you? Let's pray.